Hello, and welcome back to, I guess as well, I was going to say the Fight Site MMA podcast, but I don't know if this is an official episode, although maybe it is. Technically, I guess I'm supposed to be the arbiter of, you know what? Who cares? It's an episode, it's a, a podcast about <laughs> MMA for the Fight Site. So all those things are technically true. Um, I uh, am not joined by my usual co-host, Serum. He is uh, taking a sabbatical, and by that I mean just not on this call. Uh, I'm actually joined with Bloody Elbow analyst David Castillo. Uh, David, how are you, my friend? I'm I'm doing good, and I appreciate you having me on here. And kind of curious why you chose me at all, because um, I don't think I'm deserving of this kind of status, but. I'm ready, and it sounds like you've got a pretty good topic um, in the queue because I've got a lot of critical things to say about Fedor. So, well, first of all, hush with all that uh, self-effacing nonsense. Um, David is has worked on uh, a bunch of toe-to-toe previews with Phil McKenzie, who surprisingly I actually haven't had on the show yet. I've had Connor Connor Rebush on, um, but I guess I gotta I gotta get Phil on at some point. Um, but David and Phil write toe-to-toe previews for a lot of UFC main events. David also does specific editorial pieces uh, for Bloody Elbow and um, the sober play-by-play, which I would love seeing make a return. Those are uh, <laughs> those are some of my favorites that you write. Oh, um, man. But Dave, <laughs> David's been a writer for a long time um, and quite a good analyst to boot. And so I was always looking for a reason to have him on the show, and so I'm excited to have him on today. Uh, and... Today, we are discussing, again, a bit of a left-field topic. I feel like I'm doing that a lot lately. Um, I just finished up, like, a, a piece on Eddie Alvarez's Ringcraft, and now we're talking about Fedor. None of this is, like, really <laughs> super relevant <laughs> to the modern MMA sphere. Uh, but that's part of the fun of the fight side, is that we get complete and utter freedom to do whatever we want. Uh, and so I take that. <laughs> I take liberty with that. Um, By the way, I have a discussion. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. I, I was just going to say, I, I feel like that's pretty representative of 2020. Like, I just did a pop culture podcast with a buddy of mine in which we answered the age-old question. Why did action heroes want to kill their dads in the 90s? Like, 90s action movies seem to be the time hmm. of, like, action heroes to fight age-inappropriate villains like Stallone versus John Lithgow, Stallone versus James Woods, Seagal versus Tommy Lee Jones, uh, or that hillbilly killed from A Few Good Men versus... Brian Dennehy in the 90s classic Gladiator. Yes, a non-Russell Crowe movie called Gladiator in the 90s. So I think that's pretty like, I, I think I think you're on the right wavelength for 2020. Just talking about random shit, because what else are we going to do? Yeah. Think about the apocalypse? Exactly. Anything that passes the time. Um, <laughs> but this is the sort of one connecting thread that I guess I'll, I'll tr- attempt, I'd say that lightly, attempt to try to tie this all together. Uh 2020 has also been a very unique year for MMA beyond just the, the sort of COVID side of it, which, you know, maybe you're maybe had an effect, although maybe not. Um, it just seems like a lot of the sports paragons seem to be retiring. Uh, last weekend, we had Anderson Silva retire from the UFC again. It's fighter retirement. I'm hoping that means he's done completely. Maybe we'll see him in Bellator in a couple weeks, but nonetheless, ostensibly finished fighting. Uh, Khabib retired the week before. Um, We had Henry Cejudo hang up the gloves again, assuming that he's actually finished fighting and not trying to come back to coach a season of The Ultimate Fighter with Alexander Volkanovsky. I'm not even about to argue about how little sense that may make. And then... um, you know, even Steve Miocic closed up the the book with longstanding rival and my all-time favorite fighter, as everybody knows, Daniel Cormier, who who then retired as well. Um, it just kind of feels like a lot of people are exiting the sport uh, for a myriad of reasons, and that's fine. That's you know, I'm I never hate seeing fighters retire, uh, particularly if it's a little bit earlier in their careers. Um, so today we are going to discuss. Um, a fighter who sh- should be retired. <laughs> I'm a, is he is he retired? Do you know that? I'm not sure. I, I don't Has think so. On that? No, I, I don't. Oh. No. Um, Fedor Emelianenko. Um, and really, what what caught my eye on this was uh, something that David pointed out, and 
we will get into this in a minute, um, about not really Fedor's legacy, which tends to be the big defining question when people talk about him as, you know, the greatest heavyweight ever. It's more, you know, this is the fight site. We're a little more granular than that. Um, he discussed Fedor as a technical fighter and how how well he adjusted his game over time or, you know, something topic that I really can't get away from, how he adapted to the sports trending meta. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, David, you would argue that he didn't quite adjust to that. Um, so I'm going to I'll stop here. I'm going to I'm going to throw it to you and I'll let you sort of say your piece about Fedor and where you stand on him and then we can begin the discussion. So what what was your <laughs> what was your your tweet? <laughs> I'm hesitant to say it because I, I, I don't want to people think that I'm lying about it. Um, but I think your words were technically awful. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm throwing you under the bus. Have fun. All right. I, I appreciate that. I, I'm not like so. Th- this wasn't like a Skip Bayless moment for me. Like it's not like I'm not here to say like ah, Fedor sucks, man. Like why were um you know of course I, full disclosure. Like I was in the middle of like the underground forum and like SureDog.net debates about like UFC versus Pride. You know this is that kind of era of like. Republican versus Democrat style, like animosity among MMA fans. So like I was definitely a part of that. And, um, and early on, maybe that sort of biased me in terms of like, all right, I get it. Yes. Cyborg memes. Okay, cool. But, um, I just want to start by saying that Fedora is one of my favorite fighters to watch, like pretty much ever. I mean, yes, he's remembered as being like the heavyweight goat, but to me, it was always about the anticipation of violence in a Fedora fight that I think was second to none. Like with most fighters, you knew what you were getting and you kind of knew how. You knew GSP would take the fight to the ground, how he would try to get it there. Um, you know, it's like everybody else or like Nog, Aldo, McGregor, whatever, but Fedora was like this whirlwind of violent ridge hands and arm bars. But, I think the main thing is that, and I guess maybe like the first maybe point of contention we kind of talk about is, is the fact that Fedor only defended his title four times. And that's a very superficial point. So I'll kind of explain myself. Now, well, MMA nerds point out that Pride had Grand Prix and this took away from Fedora's amount of title defenses. Yeah, of course. And in general, it is a superficial point. So I'm not dying on the hill that Fedora sucks, but I am dying on the hill that Fedora's legacy is not Mount Rushmore quality. Because I think what else defines someone's like title reign specifically than how many times they successfully defended from a number one contender? Yes, those awesome Grand Prix were awesome, but like... His, like, Fedora's road to the rematch with Nog was, like, Mark Coleman, Kevin Randleman, and Naoyu Ogawa. And, yeah, Coleman was good early in his career, but he had already washed out of the UFC. I think he'd lost, like, the last three fights of his. And, yes, Randleman earned, you know, quote-unquote, earned the shot by, like, pancaking Krokop with a left hook. But this was, like, a Randleman that also got destroyed by, like, Sakuraba and Rampage in his previous two fights. And so... After beating Nog and Pride, literally the only fights worth a damn were the Nog rematches and Mirko. Like, that's it. So I, I think that's why you can, it's kind of, maybe we're kind of like jumping to different points, but I think that's why you can maybe make the case that even someone like Nog had the better resume because, because, you know, he was fighting Fedora and elite contenders like Karatanov, who was really good at the time, Barnett, Verdum, like Fedora just didn't have any of that in his resume. I think that is an interesting point to, to jump to. And it is something that I've, I've pointed out about Fedor in the, in the past. Um, I mean, it is, it, it can be hard to, yeah, this is something that I think, I think it actually was Phil McKenzie, your partner that um, pointed it out about Anderson Silva's resume. Cause I think Anderson Silva had a little bit of the same, you know, not, not in terms of title defenses, but a little bit of the same criticism can be applied in terms of his level of competition. Um, and something that Phil pointed out was like, you sort of just have to fight who's in front of you. At the end of the day, like you, you know, you can't always pick and choose, pick and choose your opposition. I mean, Nog's win over Verdum, I think, aged quite well. Uh, you know, even if Verdum beat him later on, like, it's a win that you probably, you really couldn't have sort of 
expected or seen coming turning out to be as uh as useful as it was um you know whereas fedor often was just sort of as you, you know said in these sort of grand prix he had to fight who was in front of him like coleman uh and randleman which are not you know they're not meaningless by any means um i do think that you can you can go back and look at fedor's list of victories i think around probably to around 2006 uh, i'd say that sort of that end end of pride run was sort of where his uh you know the sort of peak fedor's fedor's peak operating window might have closed up um and I, I would agree with you. I think the the two victories over Big Nog and then the the Krokop win, which really stands as kind of his, you know, probably Fedor's defining moment, if you ask me, because that was an, it was an official title defense. Um, it was one of the earliest examples of a really, you know, strategically and tactically astute game plan. Um, but you're looking at some of these other some of these other fights, like you know Ogawa and you know, Goodridge and you know, even Zulazino, it's like, these are not the, let's talk about the greatest opposition here. Um, and as you said, they weren't, you know, they weren't technically official, official wins. I, I sort of have to wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm a younger fan. I'm only, you know, I'm only 24, but like, I wonder if some of Pride's, the sort of machinations behind Pride as an organization just facilitated a sort of greater number of, you know, just throw them at the wall and see what sticks. Like, just kind of usher in a variety of fighters to face Fedor to keep him busy. Um, you know, I mean, how many of these? How many of these were squash matches? I guess is what I'm asking. I mean, quite a few, right? I think that's where kind of where my criticism with with Fedor like starts, which is that you know, like his his reign, like his historic run, like happened at a time where literally like half of the heavyweight talent in the world was on the other side. And, and while this is happening, just like the bulk of his, in fact, I think the only ranked matches like during his title run were his title defenses. Everything else is just like these, these freak show fights, which were a lot of fun. Like, and, and by the way, like I'm not also not trying to diminish uh, Fedor's technique. In fact, I'm going <laughs> to emphasize this by bringing up a really lame analogy. Um, so I played Magic the Gathering, <laughs> and and I played competitive Magic. And in competitive Magic, you generally have three different archetypes for competitive decks, aggro, combo, and control. I've always been an aggro player, and I think one of the keys to playing an aggro deck efficiently is so-called forcing them to have it. Uh, in Magic, like in poker, you don't know what's in their hand. So maybe they have a removal spell for your creature, like a goblin or elf. Yes, I know this is super nerdy. Guys, don't want to turn it off right now. Give me no, a second. We're going to have fans that eating this up. <laughs> Keep going. Or like a counter spell for your burn spell. And sometimes you want to play around those things. You want to play around the counter spell or the creature removal, but sometimes you want to make them have it. And that's how I think of Fedor. Like, that's why, like, despite all my criticism of his legacy, he's still one of my favorite fighters, because to me, he was like the OG Red Mage, to borrow just more nerdy terminology, like the art of the barrage. Like, maybe the opponent is working on time in a counter right hand or a takedown. Maybe they're not sure, but Fedor would just always force them to make them have it. And if they don't, then they're on their back foot. I think it's telling that, like, <laughs> Fedora, like, never really had a diverse arsenal. Like, wasn't, like, a kicker. Didn't really have a great jab. Didn't uppercut. You know, it was just, like, these, just these angular, like, punch entries of just, like, starting shots. Yeah. Um, there was absolutely nothing special technically about it, but at the same time, and, like, I think the Krokop fight was a great example where, like, he won a lot of those exchanges by just, like, you got the left kick, you got it in your back pocket, you don't? All right, well, if you have it, you better have it now. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, even though, yeah, a lot of that fight was won um, with, like, wrestling, um, nonetheless, I, th I think that's a good example of, like, why, yeah, he, like, I don't, I really feel like <laughs> if we list his main wins, like Nog and Krokop, we list them because that's all he had. Not because, like, oh, well, you know, had some other stuff, and, and we can, like, weigh other wins versus those and how they age, because there was just nothing else to work with. So I 
I really appreciate what you pointed out about, you know, Fedor in terms of sort of what he asked his opponents. Um, cause he, I mean, this is sort of harping on something I've, I've talked a lot about, uh, in MMA, which is initiative. Um, I think Fedor was one of those examples of a fighter who understood how to hold the initiative from a very early point. That doesn't necessarily mean he was always the best, uh, responder in all the right ways. Like, you know, his, his wrestling defense, which we may talk about a little bit later, um, his striking defense, as you said, is sort of strike diversity, depth on the field. Like, there are things that can be questioned about it, but he understood some intrinsic truths of fighting in MMA and really kind of fighting heavyweights. A lot of these people can't fight going backwards. Um, you know, if you are able to faint quickly enough and you're able to, you know, to draw reactions out, a lot of times fighters in MMA will show you their hand. Like, you know, this is a contrasting again with boxing is like fighters in MMA are a lot quicker to respond to feints with, you know, big reactions showing off, you know, whatever it is they had. Like you said, with Krokop, the left kick, you know, if you have it, you better, you better show it now in boxing. Boxers are far more likely to, you know, to keep some of their, their tricks to themselves and not be, be caught out by feints, you know, but that's, I guess that's a different discussion. Um, it does, you know, it does interest me in watching Fedor in that regard. That is something that I, I think about when I go back and watch some of his fights is how he was, you know, he seemed to understand you know, some uh, more intangibles about fighting, like initiative and momentum, directionality. Like there's, you know, there were certainly, there were seeds there. Um, you know, there were things that he understood about it that, you know, maybe a lot of other people, contemporary, contemporary fighters just didn't. It just took a lot longer for them to come around to those kinds of ideas. Musashi. Um, yeah, no, that's a great <laughs> example. Like, Musashi was, yeah, absolutely. That's been a longstanding problem for him. Um, but, you know, it's one thing to be a fighter who understands those, those kinds of intangibles. And it's another thing to be a fighter with those sort of intangibles with, uh, the skill set to really, you know, strengthen it and really play to your strengths. Um, and I guess what I really, one of the reasons I really brought you on the show and wanted to, to talk to you about it is because I really sort of wanted to get from you how you evaluate Fedor's skill set. Um, I feel like heavyweight sometimes exists in this sort of void where you can imagine, like, you can, you can transplant a Derek Lewis back to pride and maybe he'll have more success than people, people think. Um, <laughs> Or at least, you know, you know, more than people might assume. But it is sort of the it is sort of the skill set of Fedor that that interests me the most in terms of, you know, doing more contemporary sort of comparative analysis. So I'll let you I'll let you go there. I so like as much as I feel like I question Fedor's legacy because I just I feel like it's, you know, the, the Jordan Breen has that kind of really useful heuristic. Like, who did you beat? When did you beat them? And how did you do it? And I feel like that who did you beat? question is the one that Fedora, I, I don't feel like really truly like answered in a way that warrants the kind of reverence people talk to him about. So that's why it's kind of funny for me to say, you know what? Like I think prime Fedor is still really good today. Like I don't think his legacy is great or certainly not what it's argued up as, but if you were to transplant him into today's like heavyweight arena and, and the, and the annoying blubber fest that we typically get, I think the reason why he's still good today is that <laughs> heavyweight like only ever gets talent like around the edges, so to speak. Like if somebody's really good at one thing, chances are they're bad at something else. Like Myocic, great, you know, technical, <laughs> technical ish. <laughs> like Myocic is like a great technical striker. I don't want to say great, but technical striker, understanding of the game. Uh, movement, yada, yada, generally well-rounded, but he moves like a cargo loader from aliens. And like, so, you know, just no athleticism, right? Like Cormier, let's do some more nerdy analogies. Cormier, uh, he's like the princess Leia to John Jones's Jabba the Hutt, except the chain used to choke Jabba was cocaine, right? Couture, Couture, Couture was, 
the, the quote unquote, the brainy one, but he had hip dysplasia, right? Cain Velasquez, the elite wrestle boxer. But then he had like the no neck trainer telling him to do dumbass leg extensions that tore apart his knee, right? Joe Grasso. So there's always an asterisk around every heavyweight talent. And I think that's where Fedor shines. Like even though, yeah, his defensive grappling was suspect. Everything else, you know, he had it more or less going on. And there's really no, no real asterisks in terms of like that kind of all around sort of velocity that's needed to be effective at heavyweight. That kind of sparked, um, that sparked a thought to me, which is, um, I mean, I say this, I'm a, I'm a staff writer for the fight site. I understand we are, have a bit of a reputation for being critical of the big boys. Um, I get it. But something, I will sort of say this in defense of a lot of them, because we, we can make comparisons and say, like, you know, Miocic is a fine, you know, he's a fine heavyweight puncher, if you will. Uh, but is he, does he really do anything drastically better on the feet than, like, a Robert Whitaker, for example? Probably not. But you also need to sort of consider heavyweight as a division and be like is it would it really be useful for someone you know someone that size to be trying to trying to get into layered exchanges trying to you know gradate their jab and 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 set up you know with insane output and all the sort of things like a blistering array of feints like probably not you know i'm not trying to excuse the quality of some of these fighters i guess it's just sort of you sort of have to consider the division that you're in. And with Fedor, I, one of the reasons I'll always respect him is that he also, beyond understanding those intangibles, as I pointed out, but he also seemed to understand exactly what it would take to be a good heavyweight in MMA. Like he, it, it was that sort of forward movement. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly pretty ring cutting. You know, he still was sort of, he spent a lot of time just sort of following Krokop around, but Forward movement, enough to push guys on the back foot, um, attacking in transitions, which is something that even high-level MMA fighters today struggle with. Um, and there's, you know, there's obviously his, his grappling and his ground game to, to consider as well. He seemed to have a, you know, a game built that was at least designed for his division's meta. And I think there's value in that. You know, yes, there's, yes, you can make criticisms. Um, maybe, you know, again, there's probably some sort of technical ceiling for heavyweights in general. Um, that, you know, that just may not exist for, <laughs> for the lower weight classes. Um, you know, I, it, the same thing is, the same thing is true in boxing. Like, you know, boxers need to, in lighter weight classes, just have a different, different focus for their skill sets, but that doesn't mean they should be, you know, evaluated differently or unfairly as well. You can still you can still analyze these two together for comparison's sake. Um, I digress. Fedor is at least someone who you can look at at any point in his career until maybe the the strike force run, which we'll again we'll probably get to in a bit. Um, it just made sense. Like it was a you know he had played off his innate strengths, like his hand speed. Um. Like, and if you're someone who has that sort of natural, natural speed and quickness, like attacking in transitions and, and, you know, fainting level changes and like, that's exactly what you should be doing. So, so maybe it is, maybe it is the right game. Like maybe it is the right, the right technical arsenal. Yeah. I, I don't really like have anything uh, much to add except that, um, I, I think that's kind of like the, uh, <laughs> One of the reasons why, like, MMA, like, striking in MMA has taken so long to evolve, which is that striker, like, it's, like, otherwise very, like, good techniques, like, tried and true techniques, like the jab, for example, is, like, seen as kind of, you know, sort of, like, high risk, low reward, maybe. And so it's just, like, MMA strikers, like, they fall in love with power because it's just easier to take advantage of power. Um, you know, as Joe Rogan is just like always quick to remind us, Hey, they're little four ounce baby gloves that do nothing but cover the knuckle guys. And so, 
you know, that's so, so at heavyweight, this is just so much more pronounced, right? This, like this needs. So yeah, totally agree with you on kind of like, I think that the physics just don't lend itself to like real technical striking and like technical exchanges. But I think it's also just sort of like the, it's also part of MMA itself, just part of its DNA that uh, kind of doesn't really lend itself to um, efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm in a complete agreement there um, to save a little bit of face. Cause I'm sure there's some writers on our site. Some of my colleagues are probably frustrated at me for going to bat for the heavyweights. How dare I? <laughs> um, like, you know, I, I, I completely understand that like the lighter divisions are, you know, are, are generally far more skilled. Um, and I think there's, I, I think some of it, it may just be in heavyweight. Part of the issue just could be training. Like it's, as I said, it's, it's not all that valuable to be able to, you know, to execute a sort of, you know, a flanking shift past the southpaw's lead shoulder and, you know, like attack the open side with body shot. Like, you know, as you said, it just isn't, it doesn't really seem that economical in the sport. Like for them, it kind of seems like a waste of time. Um, if you're, you know, your gas tank is <laughs> it's inherently <laughs> limited. Um, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain point, there's certain points of emphasis. Um, and so you need to be you need to be able to emphasize like whatever it is your strengths are. And I think that I think that Fedor absolutely did that. I guess my next question is like, was that did that kind of become a problem for him? Because as he started to you know go further into his career, he kind of started to realize that he had a, a hand speed advantage. And that he had a kind of, you know, transitional edge and that he was, he realized that he could punch pretty hard. Um, like at one point did that, you know, did that sort of realization equate to a bit of a, a technical regression? Cause I know, I know the strike force run tends to be where people mark it as kind of the, you know, the end of fate or at least when the, like the sports trending meta kind of began to catch up with them. Like you can't. You shouldn't be trying to play a splint, a sprint grappling game from your back against heavyweight. You know, um, it's just it's probably not going to work. Um, so what do you think about that? Was that am I is my timeline right there, or do you think that it actually may have happened a bit sooner, and that there was you know pieces of Fedor's well-rounded game kind of got stripped away, and that maybe emphasized how far he began to fall. Um, well, like I, I would say that, um, so, so this is where I kind of just, um, really doubled down on this, like, ah, eh, Fedor's legacy. It's, it's, it's not what SureDog.net fans want you to believe it is. Um, which is that I really feel like the, uh, the sort of the run away from like a post pride into strike force, um, was not like an example of like Fedor deteriorating and some of the ways you can tell that is just like even his fights nowadays like he still has a lot obviously not the same chin or durability but still has really good speed really good power um and i think what happened once you got in a strike force is that not that he was exposed but that these matchups against like these sort of like kind of more hybrid ish fighters like fighters that he didn't really see even in his quote unquote historic run, right? Like, like a Barnett type or, or like Karatanov for Doom. I mean, like these guys mm-hmm. beat him largely on the back of like just kind of really good hybrid, hybrid ish in the case of Verdum, like grappling. Like, I mean, to me, like I could totally see Verdum submit in Fedor, who was never good defensively. Like on the ground, I mean, this is a guy that got his back taken by Mark Coleman, <laughs> the whole key lock. I think it's a little inflated. I, I don't think Mark Hunt like had him in serious trouble, but nonetheless, like the fact that Mark Hunt had him in side control, pretty damning. And Silva, you know, Silva, even though he's kind of just like a big lunk, um, still pretty technical guy for a guy his size. And, and Fedor was just trying to like, <laughs> just doing these dojo level, like, you know, just, uh, bridge and roll like out of like mount and all this ridiculous stuff and and I think that was a testament to his lack of acumen especially defensively on the ground which is something that I think would have been exposed at any point in his career 
and I th- and, and in the clinch too a little bit, which um was one of the big thing big things that stuck out to me when I went back and rewatched it. Like his his ability to to frame and pummel and um you know fight grips on the inside is just non-existent. Um, he just can't really do it at all, and that was. That was sort of maybe the biggest thing. I know some of it was sort of made out to be like, oh, the ring versus the cage. And maybe there's some truth to that. But it was more just like when when Silva locked up with him, um, it really wasn't tough to like pull Fedor's legs right out from under him because he couldn't he couldn't frame properly. He couldn't he couldn't shrimp his hips. He couldn't pummel um, or turn, you know, turn Silva out. It was kind of a you know in, in sort of classic you know Japanese MMA sort of way like you sort of let your opponent you sort of accept the fight that you're given and compete in that place um and that was a massive massive issue um so it's just like it's something like that that I've always sort of wondered and I guess when people when people bring up Fedor they also sort of tend to bring up like well you know, how would he do, how would like a, a peak Fedor do in a, a modern heavyweight sphere? And the thing is, I'm, I'm tempted to say that some of those things would probably still exist for him. Like, I think that a Curtis Blades would probably always be really tough for Fedor because, you know, I don't, I'm not sure, I, you know, I could trust Fedor to, to sprawl on Blades or to, to fight grips on the inside or to frame him out. Um, that the way that you hold the initiative is different now. Like it's a lot of modern fighting is a lot more about you do what you're going to do and you keep the opponent from doing what they want to do. It's not, you sort of beat your opponents based on what they're giving you and you can, you know, you're pretty well-rounded everywhere. You can compete pretty much everywhere. It's a lot more, it's a lot more mutually exclusive now. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's it's it sounds like it's kind of like, um, you know, like in order to sort of be effective at heavyweight, you just have to have the highest ceiling. Whereas like you know lighter weights, if you're like a you got like the high floor skill set, you're gonna be set. Um, heavyweight, no, I mean you got to be like a massive guy who's got like massive power or just like a technician like Daniel Cormier. That's an interesting way to put it, like the sort of the the floor versus the ceiling, you know. I guess to be a functional heavyweight, the floor is maybe a bit higher, but the ceiling's much lower. Right. Yeah. Well, then I guess like I guess I am sort of curious from you, like what would it be? What would a modern version of Fedor look like in the modern sphere? Like David, walk me through it. <laughs> you know, it's it, honestly like I, I feel like even though I, I write about this on a sort of weekly basis, like I, I just don't know that I have a good handle of like heavyweight right now. Like I, even though I feel like he would be very good, I can also see a universe where he's just very bad, just the wrong matchups at the wrong time because. As I've been like just constant like reminded like I just I don't feel like Fedor's skill set was ever I feel like even though he was great at certain things um, he also was never really um, positioned against certain styles like like I said like I really feel like someone like Josh Barnett would have been just like uh, like a terror for him just because again he wasn't a guy that was used to uh, dynamic wrestlers, um, certainly not kind of the sort of wrestle boxer stereotype that, you know, really kind of started to like blossom, like post tough and, and things like that. So, I mean, I certainly don't like, I wouldn't pick them to beat guys like Blades or Cormier, but I wouldn't be surprised if he just, <laughs> just absolutely like dumpstered Myocic, who I, I think has trouble with those kind of in those sort of explosive exchanges, those barrages. I mean, like even Nagano like caught him with stuff, uh, which like to his credit, he didn't die from, from those punches. Uh, but the combination punching that Fedor was capable of, like could totally see him just getting outright, like just wiped out. Now I could also see my, just, you know, 
taking him down and grinding him out. I mean, it's that's not some Fedora was uh, accustomed to. It's not some he encountered because uh, he just never got those matchups. It was just all Japanese pro wrestlers and Nogueira. That was pretty much it. Yeah. No, I I, I think about that a lot um, because it is for as many people as Fedor fought. It's not like he fought a variety of different kinds of styles, if that makes sense. Like there weren't. The the one thing that you could say about Stipe is that he's a fighter who fought a great array of heavyweights. You know, he had to deal with, us, you know, pressuring JDS versus sort of outboxing against Verdum. He had to deal with the shorter, faster man in DC and a larger sort of lumbering power puncher in Ngannou and like so on and so forth. It's just he had a lot of terrain to cross in a variety of different ways and it wasn't really, that just sort of wasn't in Fedor's, I don't, that's it, I shouldn't say it wasn't in his wheelhouse, it just wasn't really available to him. You know, some of, as you said, Nogueira sort of kept out some of the potentially interesting matches, and the other ones were, you know, halfway across the world. Um, so you sort of, you sort of have to think about it and like, like, w- like would that really work? You know, maybe, like, because maybe it wouldn't, he wasn't, I don't, I don't know if, Maybe I'm just misremembering, but I don't know if Fedor was someone I'd always look at as being dominant in a specific area in fights. Like there was, there was rarely like one sort of positional edge that he would continually press. And as you said previously, like the you know GSP was someone you could always point to and look at. They're going to take it to the ground, but Fedor was like a bit of a mystery. And so when I sort of think in these like these matchups in my head, like how would that look? Um, I sort of don't really know. Maybe the real question is like, how would Fedor approach these fights? It's like I'm not really sure. And I guess the the thing that's sort of bringing it all together for me is the fact that heavyweight just hasn't heavyweight may never evolve, and that's fine. You know, let them do their thing. They're they're big boys. They uh they need a paycheck too. Let them have some fun. Um, but. As a division, I don't think it's it's ever really undergone a massive, like a ma- massive technical rebirth where we, you know, like there are points that we can look at in featherweight where, you know, suddenly everybody was a competent striker and more people were, you know, you had your Chad Mendezes and your Frankie Edgars, you know, were powerful wrestlers who became competent strikers and so forth. Um, that may never happen for heavyweight or light heavyweight. Um but that also makes discussions about like displacing this sort of, you know, great hero and Fedor Emelianenko, this fighter who's been mythologized, as you pointed out, like displacing him into a modern sphere and seeing how things would look. Um, at the very least, I guess I'd be interested in it. Like, I don't maybe maybe we'd see a lot more, you know, a much spottier record if he was forced to face like a different variety of style types um you know as you said potentially even barnett um but he's also someone who as i said knew how to press his advantages and understood some of those interstitial pieces of fighting that it took his contemporaries a lot longer to come around on so if he actually you know wound up having a lot of success and not like that would surprise me either yeah, I, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, talking about sort of, uh, you know, a lot of these other fighters and thinking about, like, kind of how he would have done. I, you know, I, I so I recently wrote about Anderson Silva's legacy and had that kind of cliched moment of clarity. And I think what I came to realize, like, thinking more about it, is that I think legacies in MMA are not legacies at all, but they're MMA legacies. Uh, so I, I know that, that it, like, makes no sense, but... Uh, like, you know, if you consider time a critical piece of building a legacy, and most of these guys are going undefeated for two to four years before getting pistol whipped by Fabio Maldonado, then, then that's not Wayne Gretzky right. leading the league and scoring for 12 years and winning four cups. So I guess what I mean is that I think MMA legacies, however we've seen that, I, I think we could, MMA legacies, in other words, can be whatever we want it to be. It's like, um, you know, so what if Habib only defended his belt twice, never lost, and just grappled the shit out of his opponents? Like, that's amazing. That's awesome. And so what if John Jones was a loose cannon of, like, 
cocaine lines and Twitter tantrums. Like nobody beat him in the cage, <laughs> even when he spent less time training for his opponents than like making internet beefs with like gay Swedish teenagers, right? So I mean, I think legacy, like MMA legacies, they're crude, they're short lived, and that's because fighters are still figuring out what works and what doesn't. Like in other sports, techniques are refined enough that you're not going to see dramatic shifts in styles, and so. I think that's kind of where Fedor sort of enters that picture. It's funny you say that because I'm, I'm being completely serious. I was actually thinking about that exact something along those lines um, literally just a couple days ago. Um, as I continue to, to sort of trudge through this metagame series, which I have a new one coming out soon. Um, I think oh, shameless one. plug. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that really. Yeah. You see, like how I did that. Um but no, I was I was thinking like, what do I really like? What do I really care about in fighters? Like, what is it that really is of interest to me when it comes to to writing and evaluating fighters and their legacies and and the strides that they make? And it really seems to come down to the fighters who can who really try to do something different. Um, and that doesn't always mean, you know, doing something. <laughs> like Kakuno trying to punch Tony Ferguson's fist. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's the fighters who sort of seek to to really challenge um, what I perceived to be, you know, quality fighting, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, it is it is a lot of these times that I I look back and examples to fish for in these articles, and something comes up that I may not even have really really realized or really thought about. And maybe, you know, MM, I think that's an interesting way to frame it is that MMA legacies are kind of whatever you want them to be um, without people sort of, you know, sticking to the, the, the greatest ever discussions, which get kind of boring. For me, I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in seeing, like, can you be, like, the best version of, of yourself that, that you can be as a fighter? Um, like, what what can I look back on in your career and recognize as a really impressive stride? What was a really disappointing setback? Like what, what is it that you did that I can, you know, I can latch onto that I can, I can read into. Um, I came to you a few months ago when I was writing one of these articles about, you know, Jacare Souza being a, you know, having an, an interesting to say the least. I don't really know what Jacare's legacy is going to be. You know, I, I really don't. Um, I remember him as being a fighter who never quite prioritized his skill set the way that he should have to be the most, you know, to be the most effective fighter he could have been. Um, Fedor Emelianenko is is not someone I'm going to remember that way. I'll remember Fedor as someone who understood the intrinsic pieces of fighting much earlier than his contemporaries. He was someone who clearly got MMA at a on a technical level and on a sort of hypothetical level. Um, he understood the you know the need for initiative, the need to push a pace, the the need for you know, to push opponents into their, you know, outside of their comfort zones, to force their hands. Um, and, and honestly, that is, that's kind of a more, that's a more, more interesting legacy for me. Like, I think that's a more interesting place to leave Fedor in discussions than, than any kind of, you know, trying to, any kind of ranking, you know, however people want to do that. Um, those tend to be the things that really, stick out when you look back on fighters. Am I making sense? <laughs> you're, you're making perfect sense. I'm just still completely thrown off by Kakuno. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's, it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, like Joe Rogan, like, typically goes, like, just ape shit for, like, innovations and, like, oh, man, Machida's so elusive, bro. And And, like, Kakuno was, like, the one time where, like, Joe Rogan was like just immediately skeptical. Like, what is he doing? Like, is he, is he punching? Like, punching the punches? <laughs> Where he's just kind of like, 
man, this, this, this guy is not doing something that, that I think is, of course he's not doing something that's efficient, but like for Joe Rogan's like kind of stoner mentality. <laughs> oh my God. That, oh, it's, 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 tried to innovate. You could, you could be sure of that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, you know, like, I guess as you bring that up, as you kind of like talk about that, I, I think that's kind of where I like land with Fedor, which is like, he dominated at a time when there wasn't when the the sort of shift in styles was kind of inert, and so I kind of think of Fedor as like a heavyweight version of like Takanori Gomi, if that makes any sense. Like maybe that's going to sound oh, yeah. disrespectful, um, but like yeah, Gomi was a good example of. I mean, he was the best lightweight on earth at one point, and you know, and again, this is during the time where like you know UFC like didn't have. A, you know, they didn't have the lightweight division. Then they kind of brought it back and it sort of started to like evolve and grow. But like Gomi was a guy, like you said, that just knew exactly like who he was, like really kind of bridged that gap between sort of practical fight knowledge and theoretical fight knowledge, where it's just like bringing the two together to just like land big strikes on his opponent and, and just doing that in a way that was like, a hundred percent like his instincts, like what was comfortable to him. And I, I can appreciate that. Like that, that, that is something that I can sort of stick to something that's, you know, tangible and probably a more, you know, maybe a more charitable version of, of, or vision of Fedor's legacy than his, his, you know, flatly his resume um because i think that is something that that i want to that i really wanted to sort of celebrate about him i feel like i say this a lot recently um is there's there's the sort of public perception of a fighter and then there's the actual the elements to a fighter that i find interesting the things that i really want to celebrate about them and those things are rarely ever congruent um I mean, sometimes they are. Sometimes you can look at a GSP and you could see that the, you know, the dominant superstar is really like, well, you know, he was like he that was his that was his thing is that he really rarely lost rounds and he was dominant and he figured out a system and a way to be you know, a way to be a dominant fighter. But I think sometimes it's the lesser recognized qualities that tend to shine the brightest when I really look back on fighters. And uh, I think Fedor is one of those examples. There's problems with the resume, but it's, you know, it is that natural inclination for MMA that I think really sticks out to me. Um, and that's something like that's something that's always worth always worth celebrating and introducing newer fans to because it may not be that's something that, that's a lot more likely to get kind of lost as time goes on, as people move further and further away from a fighter's prime, from a fighter's peak, or, you know, maybe they didn't even see Fedor at all. Um, it's that kind of, that kind of knowledge behind it that tends to be what really, what really counts. I, so like co-signed absolutely, but I, I just want to like kind of also just mention like a few last things, which is that, um, I, I think the, what I've come to appreciate Fedor more as he's gotten older, because I think his recent fights kind of reveal more of like who he already was in, in just a more vulnerable way. Like, I mean, like the fight against like Fabio Maldonado, like, I mean, you're talking about the husk of Fedora, like, well, maybe not even like the husk. Fedora is like the fart gust of his former self at this point. And Maldonado's not like a great or even good fighter, but he's a solid like ham and egger with good boxing chops. And like, Fedora walks right into a right-hand left-hook combination, and there's, like, one point where he gets up after getting dropped, grounded, and pounded, and, it, like, he just looks like he's, like, fish-dancing his way to an early grave. Like, just no legs, no wits, but, like, just nothing but guts, and makes, like, a, like to me, like, probably the most impressive comeback um, I've seen, like, outside of, like, maybe, like, Barry versus Congo or something like that, because it's just... It's like Fedor using nothing but like his just raw volition and, and manages to make a fight of it because like that's just, that's, that's Fedor. Like he, he was just, I think one of the most 
purely, I don't know how else to like say this without like just sounded unsophisticated, but like purely physical fighters. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's perfectly fair. It wasn't always it wasn't just like leveraging leveraging chin or you know punching power always, but he he knew how to make the big boys move. And as you've pointed out, David, big boys don't always like to move. Sometimes <laughs> it could really it could really be that simple. Just like can you can you not even always can you force an opponent backwards? Can you just make an opponent move a lot? And maybe they don't like that. Um. That is a huge oversimplification, but when you're talking about heavyweights, you know, sometimes those simplifications help. Um, David, thank you very much for coming on and discussing this with me. Uh, this was a pleasure to have you on. Ah, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to be on. Absolutely. Love to have you on again. You're welcome anytime. Um, do you have anything that I can plug right now? Cause this is your chance. Oh, uh, I I do not have anything to plug. I mean, if if you guys like already know me, then chances are like you've kind of stuck with it, uh, reading my bloody elbow work, and uh, that's pretty much all I do, man. I, I try to pretend that I'm gonna be like a science fiction writer in the future, and I still work on my novel, but it's still slow going. And then of course I've read about hockey in the past, but nobody gives a shit about hockey, so we'll do that. That's not why we're here. <laughs> Maybe you could do maybe you could do a hockey fight like a <laughs> hockey fight analysis. Oh, that's <laughs> a great one. That's... That would be that would actually be really fun. I know Jack Slack did a like a kangaroo brawl article once. That was that was pretty good. So keep pushing the boundaries. Um, I have, as I said, I have a metagame piece which I think should be going up soon. I know Ed said he wanted to hold it um, because of the election. Not like there's anything going on there. Um, so that should be coming out sometime this next week. And then I imagine I have, as I said, I finished up another Alvarez, uh, Ringcraft piece today, which I just wrote for fun. That's the thing. It's not really particularly relevant to anything. Um, but it was fun to write and I'd been meaning to write it for a while. So whenever that ends up going up, um, be sure to read that. Probably assume it's going to be held for a little while. Um, I know the next few UFC cards are ass, and no <laughs> one been. I know Zane took a bit of a beating when he said that they weren't very good, but I'll say it again: there's not really a lot to get excited on. But if something if something comes up, um, maybe I'll I'll discuss in the future. I do know that um, I am not sure when, but looking forward to some of the upcoming cards. Maybe we'll do a. Um, like a, a pay-per-view, a pay-per-view preview or after the fact. And we would love to have you on for that. Um, if you want to do something like that, cause that would be, I think you'd be a fun person to go fight by fight with on some of the big names on these pay-per-view cards with, uh, Serum and I. So uh, if we can, I would be honored. Out, great. Let's do it. Um, we'll have to, again, I'm not really sure what's, what's upcoming, but, uh, something happens, we can, we can make that happen. So, Again, David, thank you very much. You guys can follow David, David on Twitter at David Castillo AC, I believe is your handle. Yes, um, sir. and check out his work on bloodyelbow.com. You can follow me at dmarty77 and you can check out all of the wonderful writing of me and my colleagues on, uh, the fight site. So stay tuned for more. Thank you guys so much. Stay safe. Thank you.